Good. Fairly plain, fairly straightforward. Haba <laughs> baba. We get into the great bits now. Now look, um, we had a break for half term. We had uh, Tim and Miho here in a church lunch. It's, we, we've been a little bit bitty. So we are going to try and do a quick recap before we pick up chapter 12. The reason being, I think there's a, a kind of momentum to the book of Revelation. And, and if we don't feel the pace, the momentum, we, we, we won't get all the significance. So come back with me to chapter 5. That was uh, the last time I preached, just as a by the by. And do you remember, we saw the, the father seated on his throne with a scroll <clears throat> written on both sides, which we said... Here are the dictates, the judgments, the plans and purposes of God. Uh, but there was weeping, wasn't there? Because nobody was fit to open the seals, that is, to open the scroll and enact the plans of God. Until, do you remember that bit? On comes to the stage the, the, the lamb who is slain, who is also the lion. And at last we have one who is worthy. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who can bring God's purposes to pass on earth. And so chapter 5, verse 9, this lovely song, isn't it? You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were, you were slain with your blood. You purchased for God, and so on and so on. Persons from every tribe, language, people and nations. Wonderful. All right. So since that point, we've had two uh, teaching sessions. The first looked at chapters 6 and 7. And then we looked at chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. That's quite a lot, but we will recap them uh, as best we can. The, the key that, to understand them, and Matt's been helping us to do this, is to think just for a moment about uh, history and our place in it and how we interpret what we're reading in the book of Revelation. Uh, we, we've talked primarily... <clears throat> Uh, and Matt's been very helpful at this, about this phrase that's used often in the New Testament, the last days, by which we mean the time between Jesus' first uh, coming and his second coming, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. The person in the middle is not Jesus, that's us. <laughs> We're standing in the middle of the last days. Now, uh, chapter 6 to 7, we, we might want to say it's kind of one cycle, and then 8, 9, 10, 11 is a second cycle. Now, uh, some people would read the events that are described in those chapters and see them as having happened primarily in the past. That's called the uh, preterist view, if you like to read theology. Some see them as primarily uh, lying in the future. That's called a futurist view. Some see them, and these are often the guys uh, that you'll find on those obscure TV channels with all kinds of fanciful speculations about what's going on in the world and how it relates to some passage or other in the book of Revelation. Some see it as historicist or sequential, so they're constantly thinking, okay, it's this event on the news, this event in the book of Revelation, and if it is, the end of days is near, that kind of thing. But actually, we've been saying none of those are quite right, none of those are quite helpful. What seems to be happening instead is what we might call a parallelist reading. That is, we are cycling through the last days again and again, repeating the same events and period of time, but, but each time looking at them from a, a slightly different perspective. Uh, 
it's a little bit, I think, like watching a, a, a goal scored on Match of the Day when you have the same goal but shown from different camera angles. The, the point is, each new camera angle ought to add something, a new insight into uh, how the goal was scored. But in our instance, it's a little bit more important because we're thinking about uh, the history of humanity. And so we cycle through the, these, this period of last days... But each time we cycle through, we're, we're seeing things from a slightly different angle. Same events, but a slightly different perspective. All right, well, the first cycle, can you see that okay? Was that blurry? It's blurry for me, but I don't know if that's... Are you worried I'm going to knock it off? twice <laughs> All right. So, uh, chapter six and seven came as a nice package, didn't they? The seven seals. Those were the seals on the Father's scroll. And as each seal was opened, um, Matt talked us through, it was as if the, the purposes of God were being played out bit by bit in, in the world. Do you remember those? The, the first four were the, 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 the famed four horsemen of the apocalypse. The, the, the white rider. Do you remember this? Chapter six uh, uh, with a crown set on conquest, it, it, it spoke of, of trouble on the earth. Then there was the red rider uh, taking peace from the earth. Nations were at war. Then there was the, the black rider holding scales aloft uh, with a cry of, uh, about financial injustice. And then uh, finally there was the pale horse Johnny Cash uh, uh, does a lovely song about that. But anyway, uh, but that horse is called Death and Hades following close behind. And we said, actually, we're not thinking, okay, in human history, symbolically, the first rider doesn't come first, and then when he goes back, and then the second. No, these four together describe the experience of humanity on Earth during these uh, last days. Uh, uh, and all of these things are happening all at once. Nations war against nations. Financial injustice exists around the world. And people cry out in pain at the consequence. And of course, death and suffering uh, mark the human experience. Now, the four riders of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're often called, actually they describe symbolically in this beautifully rich image, life on earth in the last days. Then we came to seal number five, and uh, at that point, we, we kind of zoom in. The first four give us this big picture, the riders, presumably riders, because they move quickly around the whole earth, it's a, it's a global universal thing. But seal number five uh, speaks specifically about the church. That's the, the unique perspective we're given in this cycle. We see the suffering of the world with seals 1 to 4 as they're open. But as seal 5 is open, John uh, is given this vision. He focuses in on the suffering of the church. But the church, we find, is not just suffering. And remember there, we hear the martyrs cry. But they are being preserved. Even though they die, they are still owned and kept by the living God. That seems to be the emphasis. Those who died were told are waiting. This is chapter 5, verse 11 until the full number of their fellow servants are gathered home, until God's elect come to be with him. 
Okay, so seals one to four, big picture of all humanity. Seal five, still the whole sweep of history, but focusing in on not just the church suffering, but the church safe in Christ's hands. It's only when we get to seal six, the sixth, almost there, almost all of God's plans being unfolded on the earth, that we get a kind of future event. And that is, uh, as the sixth seal is opened, it's all this... um, What's clearly apocalyptic language, this is the final judgment we were reading about. So uh, chapter, end of chapter 5, uh, earthquakes, the sun turns black, the moon blood red, stars fall from the sky, heavens rolled up like a great scroll, mountains being removed from their places. And in this earth-shattering moment, all of humanity, verses 15 and 16, the great uh, kings and leaders, the small, normal people, everyone hides in fear. Well, why? Chapter 5, verse 17, because the great day of his wrath has come. Now, uh, then it it got a bit funny, because now we're expecting the seventh and final seal to be opened. But do you remember, we we get this kind of, uh, this interlude before the seventh seal is opened. It's almost as if the camera is pointed in a different direction just for a moment before we go back to the seventh seal. And chapter seven is that interlude. And again, that's all about the church. And you get that funny number, do you remember 144,000, which uh, is not, as the Jehovah's Witness might argue, the total number of the church, but it's symbolic. Oh, well done, God. <laughs> It is symbolically the whole church, isn't it? It's 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, they stand for the whole church. 12 times, 12 times, a thousand, multitude upon multitude in the church are gathered there. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 9, a great multitude that no one could count. And so John is given this vision. Okay, there will be terrible suffering and, and tribulation on the earth. And the church won't be spared. There will be martyrs for the faith. But, chapter 7, all of God's people will come home. That's the point of the interlude. And only then do we get to chapter 8 and verse 1. Can you see there? Now it's the seventh seal. It's a funny place to put the chapter break. It should really go a, a verse later, but there we go. The seventh and final seal is opened. And, and we're almost surprised, I think, because what we find is... Silence. It's as if all of creation, all all the heavens and the earth, just are silenced in awe and reverence as they watch history unfold and particularly final judgment and salvation played out. Just awed silence. And that's cycle one. Uh, Then, chapters 8 to 11... We come to the the seven trumpets. Clearly, there's going to be a match going on. We don't go from seven seals on the scroll to seven trumpets just by random, do we? And again, the kind of in the same way that we can understand a scroll with seals being opened, the language of trumpets is is not entirely unfamiliar to us. In medieval England, the, the trumpet sounds as the king arrives or as the king's proclamation is made. To the people, silences the people, here is the king's word. Something similar in scripture, perhaps more particularly though with a note of judgment. 
the trumpet sounds, the Lord has come to, to act, often in judgment. Now remember, the four seals, horse riders one, two, three, four, we got this big picture of what life on earth was like for humanity. And the four, uh, the first four trumpets kind of match that nicely. Again, it's this idea of suffering in the world as an expression of divine judgment. We know it's divine in its source. Uh, chapter 8, verse 5, the censor comes from before God and the hell's its fire onto the earth. This is not separate from God. This is God's present judgment on the earth. But whereas in the seals, the four horsemen, we heard all about people and their experience of life on earth, with the first four trumpets, what we're hearing about is... Um, Ecology, I guess we might say. It's, it's creation itself. So the, the first angel, uh, fire burns away the trees and the grass. The second angel blows a trumpet. Uh, marine life, uh, disasters, marine, maritime transport fails. Uh, the third trumpet, waters become polluted, bringing disease and death. Fourth trumpet, you get this... This global proclamation, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, chapter 8, verse 13. It's as if uh, God himself is, is drawing attention to the, to the creation breaking down, not being what it ought to be, as a means of calling his people back to himself. See the judgment all around you, repent and come back to me. Now, look, I keep emphasising this, I know, but same period of time, isn't it? First four horsemen, first four trumpets. This is uh, uh, the last days still, but the perspective is different. First four seals told us about the suffering of people on earth. First four trumpets about the suffering of creation itself. Seal five told us about the preservation of the church in the midst of suffering. Trumpet five, that's chapter nine... Uh, that's a a really tough chapter. It's about the the terrible suffering of the non-Christian world, but it shows us that there's a a demonic source to the suffering. Uh, So chapter 9, the Lord gives the key to Satan, the fallen star, and he opens the abyss, and out from the abyss comes... Well, uh, this was... Matt did this really well. Do you remember he showed us pictures... Uh, kind of collages that his kids have made of supervillains, a bit of this villain, a bit of this cartoon baddie. We cut and paste them all together and we get a, a super monster bad guy. And, and something like that is happening here. Out of the abyss comes, well, well it's hard to describe. It's not, a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a possible image. I, I, uh, Dawn and I were, were playing around with Dali, which is that AI... Um, bot that draws things you describe and I, I cut and paste some verses <laughs> and not only did it slow down I think the whole of the internet but the thing it spat out at the end was nothing like what we see here because it's impossible really that the suffering is experienced by non-Christians that's hard but true verse 4 only those without the seal of God it is of satanic origin and it's described in this rich collage of judgment. Locusts devouring grain, verse 3, bringing death, scorpions stinging their prey, horses trampling their enemies, verse 7, humans at war. Uh, 
Except it's not death, but despair this demonic army brings. Uh, Chapter 9 and verse 6, people will seek death, but they will not find it. Terrible, terrible despair. Which I think I want to say I, I see in the world now. In the Western world, male suicide is off the charts, isn't it? We've never in history known a time like this. Men giving up. What's going on? Well, perhaps chapter 9 helps us. Uh, the fifth seal spoke of the, 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 the uh, rescue of the church, but the fifth trumpet pro- proclaims the terrible suffering of, of non-Christians on the earth under the rule of Satan, the destroyer, chapter at 9, verse 11, the king over them, the angel of the abyss, Abaddon, Apollyon, that is the destroyer. The sixth seal was the moment Christ arrives in final judgment. The sixth trumpet seems to describe the same event, but again, from a different perspective. Now, it's not Christ coming to judge the earth that we see, but it's the demonic retaliation to his arrival that's brought front and centre this even greater demonic army is unleashed on the earth but still the evil it, it, it brings is not enough to provoke the rest of mankind to repentance and faith verse uh, 20 they did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold and so they led to judgment now how are we doing so far pretty good Okay. Remember in our first cycle through, before the sixth and seventh seal, there was a pause of a chapter, wasn't there? An interlude focusing on the church. So now we're kind of, we've been through that cycle, we're expecting it, and lo and behold, here it comes. This time it's bigger, chapters 10 and 11. We don't get to the seventh trumpet until chapter 11, verse 15. And when the seventh trumpet sounds, we, we, we see it's heralding in the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. The seventh seal was silence. The seventh trumpet is now the end of God's work is complete. The, the, the heavens and the earth are, are renewed and brought together as one. So chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. You see, that's, that's not just a logical, it's a beautiful theological end to this, this period of time. I say that having skipped through the, the interlude, because uh, we, we ought to be honest and say chapters 10 and 11 are a bit tricky to understand. Uh, Matt did a great job and helped us see that both seem to be concerned with the witness of the church. That is, the, church, the work that the church does in this last age while the demonic army is wreaking its havoc, causing suffering all around us. Just very briefly, chapters 10 and 11. Chapter 10, we start with this mighty angel, uh, verse 1, whose description is very much like the way Jesus is described in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, 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 robed in a cloud, crowned with a rainbow, face like the sun. This seems to be Christ, and he stands spanning the sea and the land. He's constraining, holding back final judgment, and he holds, do you remember this, a mini-scroll. 
It's as if that great scroll from uh, the Father's hands becomes miniaturized because, like Ezekiel did in the Old Testament, John must eat the scroll. Held by the Lord Jesus, we take this then to be the word of Christ. And it is, verse 9, both as sweet as honey. We're familiar with that description of the Bible in the Old Testament. But it also turns his stomach sour, verse 9. Because he must prophesy to all the earth, not only about love and redemption and rescue, but about divine judgment from which this rescue is needed. Chapter 10 and verse 11. Now, if, if we see the Apostle John at that moment representing the whole church, and I think we're supposed to, then what we're seeing in this interlude, part A, is the church evangelising the world, proclaiming salvation from judgment, using the word of Christ. If that's the case, and I think it is, then chapter 11, the interlude, part B, continues that same theme now now no angel no mini scroll to to swallow Uh, 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 chapter 11 is a vision with lots of elements some of which are hard to understand but i think the whole of it is relatively clear the it's not the apostle john who stands for the whole church but now we're told chapter 11 and verse 3 that there are two witnesses who seem to stand for the church now, again, that's the kind of passage that has led to great speculation. Are the two great evangelists that it's pointing to? But, but actually, the two witnesses of, uh, 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 are the church. And I, I think we're supposed to see them as Moses and Elijah, standing for the law and the prophets, which testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. I say that verse 6 because it was Elijah who called on God to withhold the rain. And it was through Moses that the waters were turned into blood. Verse 6 then, it it seems to be Moses and Elijah, the the very ones who stood with Christ in his transfiguration, who now stand for the whole church and show us the witness of the church. Verse 3, they wear sackcloth because they preach a message of judgment, calling the world to repentance. Verse 4, the olive trees and lampstands underline their dependence, their utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. Their their witness, that is, the witness of the church they symbolically represent, is almost overwhelmed by Satan, verse uh, 7. But just for a short time, uh, a time plus a times plus half a time, half a week, verse 11, they'll be gloating over the demise of the church by some, uh, verses 9 and 10, but the enemies of God won't win. The church will rise to life. And when its work on earth is done, it will be welcomed to heaven, verses 11 and 12, even as the world experiences final judgment. And then the final bit of the chapter, verse 15 onwards, is the seventh trumpet. We've mentioned that. All right, not easy going, I know, but important. Two cycles now we've been through. The seven seals and the seven trumpets both give us the sweep of human history from the coming of Christ till his return. And in both we see some dominant themes, sin and suffering, both ecologically as the creation groans waiting for redemption, but also as the dominant human experience in life in this world. But throughout the time, 
the Lord sustains the witness of the church despite horrible opposition and he will hold on to the church until finally he moves in final judgment against the world and gathers the whole complete every one of the church back home at the end of the age. So two cycles, two perspectives, but much in common. Uh, both show that the Lord is in control. And that's key, isn't it, for John's first readers. Remember, they were persecuted Christians. And he was standing with them in persecution. And so it's important that they hear that the Lord is control, even over suffering, whether it's in creation or in humanity. Uh, both also show that this uh, suffering experience on earth under the judgment of God, it is not the final judgment, it's a restrained judgment. We've got these fractions, do you remember? In the first cycle, a quarter of the people had this, and a quarter of the people had that. It, it, with the trumpets, it, we've moved to a third, but a third of the trees, a third of the rivers, and so on. The point seems to be, God is restraining his hand at this point. Things are bad, but not as bad as they might be. Uh, the other thing that they share in common is that they both give us what we might call visible history. That is, they, uh, they speak of events and experiences that we human beings can see. And, and so therefore, having done these two loops, if we were to pause and think, okay, is there anything missing here? What, what more do we need to understand? What would it be good to know? then the thing that we've not yet seen is an insight into the unseen world of spiritual realities. These passages, for example, they, they intimate the work of the devil, but, but it's only here in chapter 12 that we do another loop, but actually now we see the invisible world, which shapes all that goes on in the visible world, and, and it's here that his presence and work of the devil that is is made explicit all right i won't take anything like as long going through at chapter 12 is actually more straightforward than many of john's visions there's really uh, three key features isn't there you perhaps noted them as we read uh, a woman a dragon and a great battle between them let's think about them one at a time We'll start with a woman. Uh, uh, verse 1, she appears in this new vision. A woman appears as a sign in heaven. She's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, crowned with a crown of stars, verse 1. She's pregnant, verse 2. So who is she? Well, don't shout out yet. Uh, verse 5, she gives birth to a son, now that's interesting, he rules the nations, but the quote is from a messianic psalm, isn't it? Well, there's the hint that we're looking for. The son is Christ himself. Now that fits because after his life on earth and his death and resurrection, yeah, you could say in the ascension, he is snatched up to God and to his throne, verse 5. Okay. So uh, is this woman Mary, the mother of Jesus? And you think, well, come on, this is the book of Revelation, that's too clunky, that's too literal. 
We're not in the world of literal things as we look at these visions. We're in the world of symbolism. This woman, verse 14, is later given two wings of an eagle. Not Mary, no, that's too clunky. The, the dragon rages against the woman and her many offspring, not just the, the one unique son and her offspring, verse 17. They're described as those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That's Christians, isn't it? That's a, that's a pretty good definition of Christians. That's very similar to the way that uh, John introduces himself in chapter 1 and verse 9. So who's this woman? Well, she is the church. Jesus came from the church in the sense that he was born in the line of David. And it is the church believers which Satan opposes. We've seen that in a small way in the last few chapters. Now we'll see it in a much uh, more clearly. Uh, Which brings us to the dragon then. A red dragon Now, here we don't even have to do much hard work. Uh, Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake. Oh, that takes us back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? That ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Okay, well, that's easy. The dragon is Satan. And then there is this battle, a a great war, except it's very one-sided, isn't it? That, That the... Uh, uh, the dragon attacks the woman and her offspring. Or to move beyond the symbolism, Satan seeks to destroy the Christian church, the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. As we read through the chapter, we see that kind of those attacks going through stages. Verse 4, Satan is prowling, waiting so that he might destroy the woman's child the moment he is born. I, I guess that, that makes us think of the Old Testament period. Since the judgment on, uh, on, on the serpent back in Genesis 3, uh, 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 an offspring of a woman uh, to the serpent, uh, the Lord says, uh, uh, you will strike his heel, this offspring that will come of the woman, but he will strike your head. Well, we're waiting. When when will this offspring of Eve be born? Throughout the whole Old Testament period, Satan is prowling around. When is this Messiah, this promised one coming so I can pounce and and devour? Uh, If you remember in the book of Job, chapter 1, the Lord speaks to Satan. But he says, where have you been? Do you remember that in chapter 1 of Job? And Satan says, not... Well, I'm king of Hades, I live in the underworld. That's for cartoons and, and, and wide literature. Now, in the Bible, he says, I, I'm roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Where is Satan? He's on earth. He's waiting for the Messiah to be born throughout the Old Testament period. And then we come to the Gospels, and Jesus is born. And Satan attacks. And ultimately, Satan strikes out at Christ's heel in the crucifixion. But you know how this goes, don't you? Christ is victorious. He rises from the dead. And so he crushes the serpent's head, Satan's head. And then Christ ascends to the Father's side, snatched up to God and to his throne, verse 5, a place of safety. Uh, Then we get this uh, uh, period in verse 7 where... 
it seems as if following the ascension, there's this great attack of Satan and his armies on heaven. It's almost as if he's chased the Lord Jesus Christ back from earth to the heavenly realms, uh, but he can't quite get to him. Instead, God's angels of light, led by the archangel Michael, that's a good name, isn't it, for your kids, uh, they hurl Satan and his enemies, uh, his armies of fallen angels, uh, back to the earth to lead the whole world astray, verse 9. And so what does Satan do? Well, he continues to be on earth, but he's unwilling to accept final defeat, and so he spends his time attacking the church. That's what verses 13 to 17 are all about. Satan pursues the church, but she's always protected. You get this lovely uh, image of the church being taken by the Lord to the wilderness, which in the Old Testament, we don't often think of it this way, but when the people are rescued from Egypt and given the wilderness for a time, for a period, as a temporary measure, it's a place of rescue and peace just for a time. And it's that that the church has uh, by the Lord's hand as Satan attacks. Verses 15 and 16, the Lord even summons creation itself to make sure that the devil's attacks don't overcome the church. So that however enraged he might be, he will not win the battle. And Christians uh, hold fast uh, to their testimony, verse 17, about Jesus. Well, at this period of last days, that's what we keep thinking about. What, what is it like? Uh, those first two cycles, uh, suffering under God's hand of judgment uh, in humanity and in creation. Yes, that's true. Creation is groaning, Romans 8, waiting for the day of redemption. But, but can you see in chapter 12, now we see the invisible. For a moment. And standing behind all this, Satan is at work. And it's his business to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ's church. But take heart, John is being told, because he is failing and he will fail. That's the, the song in the middle of the chapter. That's the the central part of the chapter, verses 10, 11, 12. It's this great victory song of the church. This is really important. And on another occasion, it would be nice to have more time to go through it. But for now, I'll just have to um, mention it and we can talk more at another time. But the song takes us and points out the chief tactic that Satan uses to try and attack the saints. How does he try and attack you and I today? Well, verse 10, he accuses the saints before our God day and night. That, that voice, how, how can you love such sinners like Mike? Satan cries out to God. Look at his life, his thoughts. Look at the horrors of his heart reject Mike, send him to me, Satan cries to the Lord God about me, about you. But, but the church's defence, verse 11, is, is airtight. They triumph over him, that's over Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. 
That is, when Satan makes his accusations that you're not worthy to be saved, that you have no business in the presence of God, the only answer, the perfect answer, that will always repel those attacks is, we triumph by the blood of the Lamb, verse 11. That is, we say, you're right, I'm not worthy. Who am I that the Lord should look upon me with favour? I'm filled with sin. But the Lord God embraces me as his own because I am cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's lovely, rich language. But you see, if we were to simplify it, we would say the shield that defends us against the attacks of Satan is just the simple gospel. All I, all I hold to is Christ and him crucified. He died in my place that I might be forgiven and cleansed and go free. And on the basis of the gospel of Christ and him crucified, the church, despite having being attacked in terrible ways by, a, by a, a furious Satan on earth, will always stand and stand to the very end. Chapter 12 is the invisible reality which characterises these last days. Satan will attack, but Christ has been victorious already. And if we stand in his victory, the church will always persevere, and it will to the very end. Uh, That's the kind of the theme verse, I think, for the book of Revelation. And can you see how all of this plays into the big theme? The Apostle John wants to encourage suffering Christians. Suffering is not something that's gone wrong. It's just normal on this earth. But you will triumph. You triumph now against Satan attacks by the blood of the Lamb and by the very same blood of the Lamb. You will be victorious on that final day when you go to be with him forever. So, verse 12, rejoice, rejoice. That's a lot to cover, isn't it? But that brings us to the end of The Woman and the Dragon. Great chapter. Uh, Matt will be back to take us through chapter 13 next time.